Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening to The Shift. Uh, I am your host, Doug McKenty. This is episode four. My guest today is Tom Secker. This is uh, recorded on Wednesday, July 12th, 2017. If you're interested in what you're hearing, uh, please check out uh, our Patreon account. That's patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more information, you can check us out on Facebook at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Uh, or join the conversation on Twitter, at D. McKenty. So my guest on the program today is British-based writer and researcher Tom Secker, co-author of the book National Security Cinema, The Shocking New Evidence of Government Control in Hollywood. This book compiles a new data set acquired through a Freedom of Information Act request and outlines a disturbing pattern of influence by elements within the U.S. military-industrial complex over many of the most popular movies and TV shows produced out of Hollywood, spanning back many decades. It provides specific examples of many film and television programs whose scripts were significantly altered to paint the U.S. military and American foreign policy in a positive light. The book will leave you wondering where the line between pop culture and government propaganda is drawn, or if there is even a line drawn at all. Tom's specialties include the history of security services, Hollywood, and terrorism, and his research has appeared in The Mirror, The Express, Russia Today, Salon, Tech Dirt, and elsewhere. Check out spyculture.com for more info and listen to Tom's podcast, Kalandestime. Hi, Tom. How's it going today? Yeah, I'm good, Doug. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. I've always found this to be one of the most fascinating topics Um just exactly how much propaganda is inserted into all these films and TV shows that we're all watching every day. Um, so I just want to, well, why don't you just start with giving us a little bit of a background uh, about yourself and then kind of introducing um, how you got into this topic and then I think uh, how you got this new trove of information via a Freedom of Information Act request. Okay, well, I guess, I mean, some people might be familiar with my work going back a few years. I published a book in 2013 called Secret Spies in 7-7, which was all about the 2005 London bombings. And I've previously made two video documentaries, you know, YouTube documentaries about the bombings. Mm -hmm. So some people may be familiar with uh, some of that. But after I wrote that book in 2013, or around the time I was finishing it in 2012, actually, I was wondering what was a topic that got me away from having to read grisly autopsy reports and unpleasant stuff like that, that as important as, you know, I believe the questions of state terrorism are, at that point I just kind of wanted a new thing to, to sink my teeth into and to try and get somewhere with as a research topic. And I noticed that this was a subject that was getting more attention in academia around that time. So I wondered, is this a good point to, I mean, I'd always wondered about this question, you know. Uh, I read a lot of spy novels when I was younger, I guess, is, is where my interest comes from. And I'd always wondered, how many of these people writing these things are spies or were spies? How much of this is real? How much of this is in some way uh, a result of the security services, let's say? And so it's a natural topic for me to kind of move into and... With the 7-7 thing, the London bombings thing, I should say, a lot of the popular theories, both kind of official theories and alternative theories, a lot of those, I think, were encouraged by popular culture. When I looked into this in some detail, I found countless examples of these exact narratives that then, after the bombings, became very popular in one circle or another, uh, in TV shows like Spooks and... Uh, various films and other TV series as well. And so from that, I set up the site, spyculture.com. I started archiving everything on there that I could find through the National Archives on this. And then I thought, time to start filing some Freedom of Information requests and see what more up-to-date information can actually be got. Because I couldn't find anyone else really doing that or not on any significant scale. So I thought, why not? Um, I'd spent a lot of time working with the Freedom of Information Act when I was investigating terrorism and so on, getting FBI files on terrorism cases, that sort of thing. So I knew how to do this. And so from maybe 2014, right up until now, I mean, I still have 
at this moment probably a dozen different requests in with various branches of different governments. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just been filing them, dozens and dozens of these things, trying to get everything that we can so that we actually have some hard data to look at. Because it's all well and good speculating about government involvement in propaganda, but I wanted to know what can we actually get that's confirmed and let's maybe build up from there. That's as, as good a foundation as we can get. So that's what I went after. And ultimately, this led to me and Matt writing the book. So uh, who else had information? I, there was uh, in the book you described that there was basically like one other person that had uh, access to this information before you got it through the Freedom of Information Act and that they were sort of pro pro government that they weren't letting a lot of it out so there hadn't been a lot of research done in this area before you uh, were able to start looking into it well to be clear um most of the information we have is actually no i suppose that's not true a lot of it is more up to date a lot of it is also historical but most of the pre-2003 maybe stuff um doesn't exist in the pentagon's archives anymore because they turned it over to a friendly academic uh, a guy called Lawrence Seward, who keeps all of this stuff in a private archive in a library in Georgetown. And he basically won't let other people in to look at this stuff. Various academics have asked him, various journalists have a- asked him. The only time I think anyone gained access to it for any significant period of time was the investigative journalist David Robb. And that was nearly 15 years ago now, well, over 10 years ago now. And he wrote a book called Operation Hollywood. But we wanted to see, having read Rob's book and having seen there's got to be some more information about this, there's got to be some more dynamite in this. This can't be the sum total of the Pentagon's manipulation of film scripts. Um, We just went after it. So a lot of the stuff we've got uh, isn't the same stuff as what's in Seward's archive. That's the thing. He's got a lot of older stuff going from, you know, going back probably to the 1920s. Um, we've tried to get as much of the new stuff, the modern up-to-date information, which in particular reveals things like, and this is something none of the commentary on this topic had ever really picked up on before, but that this involves thousands of TV episodes. I mean, we we document in the book uh, over 1,100 TV shows, and that's just titles, that's just different actual shows. If you count up the individual episodes you're probably looking at at least double that number, have been supported and in some way influenced by the Pentagon. So this is a massive thing. And frankly, we found Seward's commentary rather conservative and not exactly pro-war, but certainly not very critical of this process and certainly not very critical of what the Pentagon does in these operations, I guess you call them. So our approach is very different. Let me say that much. Our perspective is different. Right. Well, one of the interesting things about um, just even looking at the approach, and I wanted to talk about this with you, is that it comes across as like um, it's it's a subtle means of propaganda. It's not in-your-face type of propaganda. Um, And so I can almost see how somebody could look at it and say, um, oh, gosh, it's not that big of a deal. But then when you see, like you brought up already, the size and the scope of it, and then uh, later on in the interview, I definitely like to get into specific details about the kinds of changes that they make um, that are, again, seem subtle, but then because of the size and the scope of it or or you know the, the all the changes throughout, say, one movie, then it's just like the attitude changes a little bit. You know, what was a, mm-hmm. a, a powerful anti-war movie still comes across as kind of anti-war, but the soldiers are the good guys or, you know, something like that. So, yeah. so they yeah. just twist it. It's not like, I don't know, you know, it's not like what you think of as old-style Soviet propaganda where it's just in your face, you know, that, you know, we, we love communism or we love capitalism or something like that. It's this very mm-hmm. subtle, subtle transformation that they go str- script by script and, um, and, and make just enough changes that it just changes the feeling of the movie until it, you you come out being, you know, sort of pro, just feeling sort of pro military and you don't even exactly know why, you know? <laughs> 
Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, I mean, some of it isn't very subtle. If, if you look at a movie like Battleship, I don't know if you've ever seen Battleship, but mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's pretty awful. Right. Um, just as a piece of entertainment, it's not well-crafted or original or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but that is pretty obviously a pro-military movie that is akin to the sorts of things that were being made in 1920s Russia or in 1930s Germany or whatever. Right. Um, but that, I guess, is a kind of extreme example. Um, and actually, the, the Entertainment Liaison Office reports um, that we got described it as a pro-military chest thumper. That's the way they thought of it. And I think that's actually a very accurate description, but it shows you, you know, they know what they're dealing with here. These people aren't stupid or at all. Like you say, they're subtle. Mm-hmm. They're clever people who are just making little changes here, or if we m- remove that joke there, then it makes the whole scene just feel a little bit different. And so... It usually isn't the storyline or a major change to a character. It's usually just small details that added up over time, over dozens and dozens, if not possibly hundreds and hundreds of movies and potentially hundreds, if not thousands of TV shows. Mm -hmm. It adds up to quite a lot just in terms of the influence that these things have. I mean, let's face it. Everyone in pop culture copies everyone else, right? So... If you have the biggest films kind of setting, these are the standards. This is how you make a war movie. This is how you make an action movie about the military battling against alien invaders or whatever. Then other people copy that. And so it, long term, I think it does have quite a lot of influence over the pop culture and thus over people's mindsets. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost it's like this subtle form of social engineering that it just builds up over time. It's it's so it's not in your face. I think most Americans Gosh, you know, I bet most Americans, when you're talking about state propaganda, they just don't even believe that it exists. Or if it does, you know, maybe a little here and there, but certainly not in my movies or in my TV shows. And they have no idea that behind the scenes is actually this massive operation that is transforming um, the the pop culture of our time. Can you discuss? Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think. Generally speaking, quite a lot of people are quite cynical about news these days, about news media. A lot of them will say, oh, that's just propaganda for whoever, this, that and the other, particularly if it's the news media that's on the opposite end of the political spectrum to themselves. Right. Um, But when it comes to entertainment, that's not something that I think people in the West think is or in as much as they recognize it as a vehicle of propaganda. It's just like, oh, Hollywood makes a lot of war movies. Well, yeah, it does, but there's more to it than that. There's something more subtle and sophisticated going on that's much more intentional. There's no kind of mistake being made here. They haven't accidentally censored this stuff from these movies. Right. <laughs> um, so, so I think that's something, certainly. While people may be somewhat aware or cynical about propaganda in other areas, they generally aren't when it comes to Hollywood. So let's talk a little bit about the process then. You mentioned the Entertainment Liaison Office. So what is this and then how does it work and how do then so you know who is responsible for for looking at the scripts? How do they have leverage over the producers so they can change the scripts this kind of thing? Okay. Um well there's a guy called Phil Strub. He is the Pentagon's Director of Entertainment Media or their main Hollywood liaison. And he's been in the job since the late 80s. He took over from a guy called Don Baruch, who had it before for about like 40 years. There's only two guys ever had this job. And they are in overall charge of this. They work in the Pentagon at the, whatever it is, the Secretary for Public Affairs. Um, out in Los Angeles, there are several small offices, relatively small offices, for each one for each branch of the military. So Navy, Air Force, Army. Even the Coast Guard have their own office out in Los Angeles, and that's the main point of contact for filmmakers, TV producers, and so on. So they phone phone them up or email them and say, you know, we want to make this film, and we want to film at this Air Force base, and maybe have a couple of these helicopters in the background in one scene, and, oh, could we have a squadron of Marines to, you know, do something in this scene? And they say, okay, you need to send us the script. They won't do anything unless you send them the script, or at least the story outline or whatever it is that you've got. Um, And they review it line by line. And the guy who ultimately has the say as to whether the support is actually granted in the end is Phil Strub. But he does talk with various different branches of the military. Now, normally it would just be, 
you know, how are the Marine Corps being portrayed in this film? So you send it to the Marines and they have a look at it and they make, you know, they send back some notes or some comments or something and they say, we're happy with this, we're not happy with that. With some films, though, uh, like uh, Clear and Present Danger, it took them six months because they were sending this to all sorts of different departments within the Pentagon, you know, like the Drugs Task Force, people like that. So loads of different people were reviewing this script and saying, oh, we would like this change, we want that changed, we don't like that scene at all. Um, hmm. And it resulted in, in that case, uh, quite a spectacular rewriting of the script. The original script was much closer to the book, um, and the finished film really isn't, to be honest. But that's how the process works, is the requests come in, they look at them, they say, we're going to go through your script line by line, and then they give them script notes. They send them literal notes like a producer in a studio would, where they say, you know, page 57, change this bit of dialogue. Page mm-hmm. 90, we don't want that piece of action, whatever. Um, and the producers basically have to make these changes or they don't get the access to the people or the Air Force base or the whatever it is that they want. And so as a result, the Pentagon actually has quite a lot of leverage over these people. It isn't functioning, as you say, like a sort of Soviet censorship bureau as such. But it is like, well, your other option is to go and spend 20 times as much money doing the whole thing by CGI Mm -hmm. or to not make the movie. So most of the time they just acquiesce. They just go along with this. I I think one of my favorite quotes in the book was when you you quoted... um... Uh, about Black Hawk Down, that if Black Hawk Down hadn't gotten the okay from the Pentagon to make the movie, it would have been called Huey Down because there was no way they were going to get the Black Hawks to make the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And how can you make Black Hawk Down without Black Hawk? <laughs> right. So, yeah, yeah. No, I think that was something Ridley Scott said. I think he said yeah, it on, it, the, on the DVD. Right, exactly. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it, re- it really does make an enormous amount of difference. There's another... Um, What's his name? Ivar, Ivar Bryce, who produces the Transformers series. He's basically said the first film, they couldn't have made it without the Pentagon. They just couldn't have done it. Top Gun couldn't have been made without Pentagon support. Sure. And there are some films that haven't been made as a result of not wanting to go along with this process. So it does function as a kind of censorship, censorship bureau, but it's a more, it's a softer form of censorship that's more about making demands and manipulating the thing rather than, you know, just going in there all ham-fisted saying, you have to do this, you can't do that. Right, I think you mentioned that uh, Top Gun 2 actually did not get produced as a result of this process uh, because of the tailhook scandal that was going on at the time with the, with the Navy, and uh, mm-hmm. they, they didn't want any more bad press about it, so they just didn't let them make that movie. Uh, well, not at the time. It is actually being made now. Right. Um, <laughs> and... And in all honesty, they approached for the sequel that they're now making with Tom Cruise, remarkably enough. Huh. Um, he's going to look a lot older than he did then. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but th- I mean, that film, I think, still isn't, isn't being, hasn't been filmed yet. But they approached the Air Force over this and they approached the military over this back in, I think, 2012. You know, that's how early on in the process they were going to the military and saying, oh, we think we'll want this. And, you know, what do you want to get out of it? And, and so on and so forth. Right. Um, so I think they learned from when they tried to make the sequel back in the early 90s. And it was, oh, no, 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 no. We have this big tailhook scandal. And this is partly being blamed on the so-called Top Gun effect, which is a kind of copycat effect. People saw the movie Top Gun and they reckoned this somehow motivated these uh, Navy officers to go on a kind of sexual assault rampage in a hotel. I don't know quite where they got that idea from, but OK. Yeah, right. That's interesting. <laughs> That doesn't really happen in Top Gun, as I remember. Right. But but it still it shut down the production of the sequel just because these <laughs> Navy guys didn't want it to happen. So it didn't happen. I mean, that's uh, that's censorship right there, really. Well, I mean, and it got shelved for 20 years. Right. That's a long time for a movie to be sitting on the shelf, particularly when the first was so popular and successful. So, yeah, it, it is a powerful force, the entertainment liaison office network. It is. So let's go back and talk about Black Hawk Down for a few minutes, because this to me was the the uh, uh, kind of the epitome of the type of transformation that a script can go through where where you're looking at Black Hawk Down. Another good example was Avatar. So we could talk about Avatar a little bit as well. But in Black Hawk Down, 
you know, you've got a situation um, where it really could have been profoundly anti-war, you, you know, and it, it sort of comes across kind of like that if you're watching the movie. But um, I think you mentioned one of the things is that you mentioned in the book is like they take the whole thing out of context. So you don't get what the American military had been doing to the people in Mogadishu in the months prior to, to what happened, you know, which kind of sets the <laughs> stage and puts the military in a little bit of a negative light because there was some shooting of civilians and things like that. Um, and then the other thing that you talk about, and this happens a lot in movies, where the overall movie might almost have an anti-war feeling, but then you, the movie becomes about the soldiers, and all the soldiers are the good guys. So at the end of the movie, you love the soldiers no matter what the big picture really is. You almost forget about the bigger hmm. picture. Um, well, sure, you're right. I mean, uh, the reality of, of the, the provocation, the background to the Black Hawk Down incident, the real one, um, like you say, been going on for months. It was at times pretty violent. So this didn't come out of nowhere. This wasn't just some bunch of fanatics who one day decided to do this for no apparent reason. Whereas the movie and Hollywood does this time after time, it presents it as a piece of contextless history. It's like this did really happen, but we're not going to seriously look at the reasons why we're not going to interrogate that in any way. It's just this happened and these were the consequences because we want to tell a dramatic story where something happens and then there's consequences. And so that's all they really do. And like you say, this has the function not just of excluding the real context and the real buildup and provocation to this incident, but it also excludes what in the book is a pretty consistent, at least criticism of the Pentagon, maybe not strictly anti-war in like the most basic sense, but certainly very critical of Pentagon's operations and of its mentality that, you know, blundering around the world, sooner or later things like this are just going to happen. If that's the way you operate, then this is inevitable and unavoidable. None of that really makes it into the film. And instead, like you say, we end up with this story. Um, it's a personal story about a bunch of guys, basically. It's a almost a buddy adventure story, but set in an action war context. And so as a result, our emotions and our uh, sympathies are all invested in the soldiers themselves. And, you know, are they going to make it out? Is this going to be okay in the end? Rather than the question of, well, why were they there? How did they end up there? What led up to this? Why is this even happening? All of that ends up getting excluded in favor of a narrative which is just about people. And, of course, you know, anyone wants to sympathize with someone in a difficult situation. And so, again, as a result, the anti-war sentiment gets very much diluted down and sidelined, sidelined in favor of a, like a human interest story almost. So, yeah, if you read the book um, and then you watch the film, you will wonder why it is that the film is so different. Now, Hollywood would do this anyway. They do this anyway with lots of other things that aren't sponsored by the government or supported by the government in any way. But in this case, some of these changes were made by the Pentagon, and certainly the general shift in tone and shift in philosophy, you might say, is something they encouraged and supported, and wouldn't they wouldn't have supported the film had it gone, you know, <laughs> um, had it gone in the other direction, had it mm -hmm. said, no, no, we've got to maintain that, that mentality from the book, because that's what this story is actually about. But no, they sidelined or just got rid of that, and if, had they not done that, the Pentagon wouldn't have agreed. Um, and even on that, I mean, there are some, one of the changes on that, the uh, Ewan McGregor character, uh, they changed the name of the soldier because in real life, that soldier went on to rape a child. Right. And they didn't, they didn't want to draw any attention to that. They didn't want people Googling that guy's name, basically. And so things like that just make you wonder, that's how cynical they are. That's how prone to avoiding the consequences they are is that they don't even want you to think that a soldier might one day rape a child. They don't want that entering the dialogue about the military, because that obviously just makes them look very, very bad. Whether they're to blame for that in any way or not, they just, you know, they don't want that being part of the popular dialogue. They don't want that being out there for public consumption. That's censorship, right? 
Right. I mean, for sure. I mean, at the at the end of the day, uh, you're you're taking a book that is, can be profoundly anti-war, and you're making a movie that is so watered down that 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 anti-war sentiment is essentially gone by the time you're done with it. Um, it it's really surprising. Well, it's not part of the emotional engagement of the film. It's just part of the kind of background noise. Well, that's, yeah, I think that you're onto something there because that those are the subtle differences that can be made. It doesn't look like propaganda because you take a step back and you go, well, this looks like an anti-war film, so how can it be propaganda? But as you're saying, the emotional engagement makes the any anti-war message something that's in the backdrop. Like It's no longer the focus of this film. It may be something that if you think about it, you know pretty hard you might get that message um but you know if you watch the movie you're just cheering for the main characters and you're you know you're (laughs) caring about what's going on with them why don't we talk about avatar for a few minutes because that was a huge movie that seemed on its face to have this you know anti-corporate anti-war anti-colonial message um but then after you watch the movie you don't come out of it you know wanting uh american foreign policy to change right i mean the because the Marine is the good guy. You know, the Marine is the one that that stands up and does the right thing. Well, I mean, to be fair, the, the Avatar case study that we did in the book was primarily written by my co-author. But, mm. I mean, I, I agree with, with what he said there. Um, and it is clear that that movie had the veneer of being anti-war, the veneer of some more hopeful or, I don't know, progressive, peaceful, whatever label you want to stick on it. Um, just something better, you know, something better than this rampaging militarism, Mm because there just has to be something better than that. Um, And it did, on the face of it, that is in there. It is a story about a indigenous people who are attacked, and our sympathies are with the indigenous people, right? Um, But one of the crucial things is that they're not being attacked by, like, the United States military, they're being attacked essentially by a private corporation. Um, this is a resource war being conducted by like Halliburton or whatever the equivalent would be. Right. Um, so the blame is not really on the, the national military, the security state. The blame is more on callous capitalists who will happily just murder and plunder for profit. Um, But even then, is that really where they place the blame in the film? I mean, that's the thing. On the surface, a lot of these different ideas are in there. But deep down, did anyone come out of that film thinking, you know what, resource wars are really destructive and stupid? Right, exactly. Um, Because that idea is in there, but it's not really the takeaway from the film. Um, So... There again, we wonder, we didn't get manage to get any specific script notes on this, but we do know that the Marine Corps met with James Cameron, that they provided him with notes on the script, that they had people on set for some of the filming, that they, I think they even invited him in for some uh, special event afterwards. So this seems a lot more than just some like casual courtesy support for, you know, trying to get the dialogue right for the Marine character. It seems they had a bit more influence over the film than that which is all they really want to pretend they had mm-hmm. um and we do suspect in that case that maybe in earlier drafts of the script the attacking force was more akin to the united states military that it was a rather obvious metaphor for that rather than the again diluted watered down version that we actually ended up with and as matt said in a we did a, a different interview on a friend of mine's radio station um last week maybe He pointed out, has any film or any film this big, like Avatar, that's took, you know, two billion dollars or something, has any other film had less cultural resonance? I mean, who cares about Avatar anymore? Right. What influence did the film ultimately have? It got seen by everyone. You know, it made buckets of money. It was enormously popular. It was in all the media. But it added up to nothing. I... So... Yeah, I've had an interesting idea in the past that is that we watch these movies to almost to get these emotions like they make these movies to to get these emotions out of us so that we don't hold on to them and actually try to do something in real life. Like, oh, we, you know, we watch a, a Die Hard movie or a movie like Avatar or one of the Terminator movies or something and, 
you know, any and then any idea that we had that we wanted to fight the man, you know, we we got that all those emotions out watching the movie, and now we're we we do not have time or energy to really fight the man anymore, you know. No, sure, sure. They give you that kind of emotional work through. Right. So it's um, so you come out of it feeling like, okay, yeah, I've managed to project my anger about the destruction in the world onto this fictional character in a movie. Exactly. And, and so I've had my little fix of that. I can go back to my tedious office job and forget all about the problems of the world and get on with it. Absolutely. I think that's actually kind of huge. That something that people don't talk about very much, but that the that our entertainment is used because you get so many of these ideas in in entertainment, you would think that they would become reflected these anti-corporate ideas. Um, I, I wanted to go back and talk about this concept we, we touched on already, but you describe it as called civilianizing in the book, which is the technique of taking something that maybe in the original script was military and then turning it into a contractor or a corporation or some kind of civilian operation so the military doesn't really get blamed for it, even though at the end of the day, in the real world, I mean, is there even a, a distinction between the corporations and the military at this point? I don't think so. But, you know, in the minds of the people watching a movie, it does make a huge difference. Suddenly it's a military contractor instead of, you know, the United States military would never do anything like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think uh, this is one of those things that they do when they can't change something in the script whether it be a character's identity or a location or a piece of dialogue, whatever, um, when they can't just get rid of it because getting rid of it would make, you know, it would screw up the whole scene. It, you know, means they have to make two big changes and the script writers are probably going to come back saying, come on, that isn't really fair. Um, they just say, well, okay, can you make him a civilian character? So at the start of Jurassic Park 3, for example, you have this military guy, basically a renegade explorer, with no real fear for the consequences of his actions, riding around looking for this dinosaur island, and he finds the dinosaur island. And this is what, of course, causes all the chaos and the rampage and all the rest of it throughout the rest of the movie. And they didn't like the idea of this guy being military, this sort of, you know, reckless, renegade-type character. Mm -hmm. So they said, can you just, just get him out of the uniform? Just make him the president's science advisor or something like that, anything else. Just get him out of a uniform. And so they did. Um... I mean, the bizarre thing with Jurassic Park 3 is that they originally project, uh, approached the Pentagon saying, we need a couple of uh, A-10 gunships because we want a scene where they're fighting with pterodactyls. And the Pentagon came back and said, oh, no, 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 no. We're not having our, you know, high-grade gunships blasting pterodactyls out <laughs> of the sky. That's not a good look for us. People, people will feel sorry for the dinosaurs and they won't <laughs> like the military. So, no, no, that scene just gets scrapped from the movie. Um, but he says, oh, but at the end, you know, we can have the Marines turn up and rescue the people from the island. So, you know, the, the military looks like the hero. And so as a result, right. the military's role in that script went from being some reckless idiot flying around looking for dinosaurs just to, you know, and causing all this trouble and blasting pterodactyls out of the sky with high powered weaponry. So that gets changed. Oh, no, no, no. They're no longer that. They're the guys who turn up at the end and rescue people. It completely changes their role in the movie. So that's the extent to which they can manipulate a script and um, civilianization. Like I say, it's one of these quite common techniques. We also saw this in Hulk. We also saw this in Contact. We also saw this in Whiskey Tango Foxtrot, a recent Tina Fey comedy. There's a whole bunch of examples we could get into. I mean, where do you want to go with this? Well, it is just amazing, you know, what you've discovered that literally thousands of TV shows and movies over the years have been influenced in this way. Not just a couple, not just here and there, but this major program that's influencing almost everything that we watch. Um, why don't we switch gears a little bit and just go into a little bit more about the history of how long they've been doing this. And also, uh, not just the Pentagon, but I know the CIA... And maybe not so much now, but in the past, the FBI uh, also engaging in this this kind of propaganda work. Well, sure. I mean, the Pentagon started this in the 1910s, so a hundred years ago now, more than a hundred years ago. Wow. Um, and in total, we reckon the number is over 800 movies that they've worked on since then. Now, we're not saying every single one of those was subject to this kind of manipulation. But it is a case of, in all of the cases where we've been able to get hard evidence, they've been, this kinds of script changes have been in there somewhere. 
So we can only assume in an awful lot of those cases they were subject to this kind of manipulation. So, yeah, we're talking about hundreds of movies going back a century. It was only really after World War II that this process became formalized in the Pentagon and they actually set up the entertainment liaison office structure as we now understand it. Um, so, yeah, they've been... They've had a formal process since, I think, 1947, 48. The FBI, actually, were probably the pioneers of that format in that they set up their office in the 1930s. And certainly throughout the next 40 years, the whole J. Edgar Hoover period, they had this kind of approach. They would remove the FBI from certain... Like, if a character was an FBI character and they did something they didn't like, they changed them. They became a private detective or a cop or something else. Mm someone who wasn't FBI. So again, the same sort of process where if we can't rip the whole thing out of the script, we just distance ourselves from it. So our only presence in these products is some kind of benevolent, heroic one. So there's never any, you know, in any of these products, and even in things that they didn't support, there was um, an episode of uh, that, what was that show that Alfred Hitchcock made? I think it was just called Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Yeah. Um, where they did this, where there's a character in there that basically advises a woman who is doing something illegal. And in the original script, he's FBI. And through an informant at the studio, it gets back to Hoover that this is what's going to be in the episode. And even though they offered no production support or assistance whatsoever, they managed to lean on the screenwriter to change this. So that's how powerful they could be, that even without someone coming to them and wanting something they could still operate this kind of censorship and manipulation. Wow. And so we don't think the FBI is still like that. I mean, obviously, since Hoover died, they have somewhat faded in relevance. I'm not saying they're unimportant. I'm just saying other agencies, I think, have come to the fore. Um, and in particular, the CIA. Now, the existing kind of historiographies, the existing academic books and what have you, on the subject of the CIA in Hollywood, very, very good. But they did miss some stuff. And again, we would suggest they're guilty, or certainly I would suggest they're guilty of a somewhat too conservative approach to this. They almost don't want to go down the road of, well, hang on, does the CIA actually have a strategic mindset for what it's doing in Hollywood? Because um, we would suggest that the, the documentation and the examples we managed to put together very much suggest that they do have. Um, and in one chapter of our book, we lay this out we try and lay out basically the whole history in a very condensed way of what the cia have been doing in hollywood since their inception because that's the thing they didn't set up their entertainment liaison office until the 1990s but we proved that basically they were always operating in some kind of fashion in hollywood since the late 40s and early 50s mm -hmm. so from the get-go they were doing this from even from the days when they were only a you know a little agency with 3,000 employees they still recognize that Hollywood is important and getting stuff in there and removing stuff from there is important. Like, uh, I think you mentioned that uh, Ian Fleming, who wrote the James Bond novels, was a friend of Alan Dulles. I mean, they were working together to kind of craft this James Bond character into something that would make the CIA look good. Well, not, um, I wouldn't go quite that far, but certainly they were close friends. They exchanged a lot of correspondence. They did discuss the Bond novels. And the Bond novels did become more of a vehicle for promoting the CIA. I mean, this is something we should remember. Back in the 1950s, when the Bond novels were first coming out, no one really mentioned the CIA. They didn't really talk about them on the news. They weren't mentioned in films, books, whatever. But the CIA, nonetheless appear in all of the James Bond books and they are named as such, they are named the CIA um, and when Dulles and Fleming became friends in the late 50s, that's when you start to see the Bond novels incorporating more of the Felix Leiter character, he plays a bigger role, he's more prominent, it even references Alan Dulles in a couple of books I mean right. that's, how, that's how much Fleming wanted to flatter this guy so yeah, um, and then you get to Thunderball which is possibly the most pro-CIA of all the Bond novels, and the film adaptation of that was the, you might say, the, the prototype for the CIA promoting itself through Hollywood. Because there again, you have the Felix Leiter character, but also they provided some support to that film. At the end of it, you may remember, Bond and Domino were stuck out in the Caribbean, and 
uh, a plane with a skyhook, comes in and rescues them. Never been seen in cinema before. And one of the reasons is because at that time it was basically still a classified technology being used by the CIA. Mm. And that plane was actually loaned to the producers by a CIA front company. So, like I say, even back then, there are all these signs that they actually had at least some kind of strategic mindset for promoting themselves and promoting what they wanted to see in Hollywood. And now you've got shows like 24 and Homeland that are that are heavily influenced by the CIA, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, Homeland is possibly the most CIA-influenced TV show ever, I might suggest. Um, ever, going back to even before the first season, there were producers, there was Claire Danes even, was visiting Langley, and, and this was all done very hush-hush. People didn't know about this at the time, that mm. Claire Danes was going to meet the deputy director of the CIA. Well, obviously, that's newsworthy, but the reason why it didn't come out in the news is because the public affairs office said, oh, no, this is very hush-hush, we want this you know, effectively kept quiet. Well, why? I mean, it's kind of trivial, isn't it? Or shouldn't it be? A Hollywood star goes to Langley. I mean, that's kind of dumb, really, in a way. But so what are they up to? Um, and over time, we've learned that they've had ex-CIA consultants. They've had CIA, active CIA officers helping to work on the script. They now, before each season, they, the producers and the main creative staff uh, hold a series of meetings in a ex uh, arranged by an ex-CIA agent who's the main consultant on the program. And this is in an old CIA club in Georgetown. And they meet with people from the White House, State Department, CIA, military, all sorts of different agencies to come and say, well, what do you think of the trends that are going to be coming up in the next year? Because we want to make, because they have this obsession with making Homeland like reflect real world events as they're happening. Um, and you have to wonder, for an agency like the CIA, that's just a open invitation to say, well, we'd quite like you to put this in the series, you know? Right. And what, what are the producers going to do? They're desperate for ideas. That's what they're setting up these meetings for. They're saying, come, give us some ideas. We, you know, we want you to inject something into this. We want you to give us some kind of inspiration and direction for the series. So, yeah, I think watching Homeland, you have to see almost everything in there as the result of this kind of process. Um, I'm not saying everything in there was written by the CIA, obviously. I'm just saying it's a result of this relationship because it seems to have gone back right to pre-production on the first season and it seems to go right the way through to today. It's uh, it's such the strangest thing about this process, this process really of creating propaganda, that it it's not so direct. It's so almost it's so subtle. It's so behind the scenes that it is difficult, as you say. Many of these other academics that have written about this end up having this pretty conservative uh, approach to it. But I uh, I have a tendency to agree with you that that over time the um, and and just uh, enough of these subtle twists, and you end up with some some pretty powerful, uh, just emotional changes that, that end up, uh, you know, I'm sure the frustrating the writers <laughs> who, who wanted to write a, a seriously anti-war movie or, a, you know, something about the CIA, and then they end up getting so watered down that the initial, uh, you know, the initial idea uh, is lost. But I wanted to talk a little bit about this show, 24, because I had this experience. I actually watched the first season of 24, and I remember it because I thought, and, and and I'm asking you this because of uh, your work on terrorism and uh, on 7-7. Um, hmm. You know, in 24, we actually had this first season where it was implied that uh, maybe this act of terrorism was an inside job. And I thought, man, you know, are these, you know, like 9-11 truth kind of ideas going mainstream in this show? And then, of course, there's a twist in the plot and suddenly the CIA becomes the good guy and by season two... He's just fighting evil drug dealers in South America. Um, you know, it seems to me like maybe this is even the kind of influence that the CIA might might subtly be injecting propaganda into the people by by taking a plot that may even seem, you, you know, anti-establishment and then and then being able to tweak it so that at the last minute they become the good guys. Well, I certainly understand where that suspicion comes from, because it appears there is... In reality, uh, the TV, much more so than the films, 
when you watch the TV series that have been sponsored by or supported by MI5, CIA, whoever, it is curious how often these sorts of ideas find their ways in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do wonder, do they like that kind of idea? Did they encourage it with the writers? But only in a certain context, in a certain way, and usually with that sort of narrative twist, but not always. And I guess, I mean, the way I approached it with the 7-7 thing was that I theorized, this is speculation, that the way it works for them is that it encourages uh, everyone to just reinforce their own existing beliefs. So if you think, oh no, this stuff's ludicrous, it's just a bunch of hokum fiction conspiracy theory, the fact that it's on a TV show will just reinforce that. Oh, it's just the sort of stupid thing a Hollywood writer would come up with, right? For sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how often... But that also... uh, Well, I was going to say, but that also cuts the other way. So with the people who, for whatever reason, believe all of these things are inside jobs or somehow state-sponsored, they also have their opinions reinforced and that worldview reinforced, Mm -hmm. which, again, it takes them away from actually exploring the evidence and maybe doing something with that evidence. So... It just encourages it as a kind of vague mentality rather than anything that actually has any consequence. So both of those results, I think the CIA or MI5 or whoever, probably fine with. They they can live with that. They end up on top. I mean, even, you know, how many times have you heard if you mention a a conspiracy theory to someone, they're just like, oh, that was a movie or that was on TV. That's not real. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, you know, no matter what the facts are, uh, they're just not going to take you seriously anymore. It's just an interesting and I think we have gone into a little more speculation here, but interesting to wonder if uh, if this isn't a tactic that they use to uh, just kind of, you know, either just to kind of belittle people that are finding uh, that make making alternative uh, interpretations of, of what's going on outside of what you're getting from the mainstream media. Well, and I mean, I did do on my podcast on clandestine um, a few episodes back. I did quite a lengthy study of the whole notion of uh, false flag terrorism as it relates to training exercises. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you have this hypothesis that, oh, if there was an exercise anywhere nearby in any way, somehow related to this event, then therefore it must have been a false flag. That thing's been in the water supply for a long time, and sometimes it's more plausible than others. Right. Um, I found, going back decades, films and TV shows that were sponsored in some way by the state that contained that idea. In fact, I found so many of them <laughs> that you really do start to wonder, is this an idea they want us to believe? Interesting. Interesting. And certainly it's an idea they don't seem to have much problem with because it turns up time and time and time again. Uh, Movies like Goldeneye, an enemy of the state, employ this idea. And we know that Goldeneye was reviewed by the Pentagon and that they did remove stuff from that script, but they didn't remove that. We know that enemy of the state involved CIA support and possibly the NSA as well. No one removed that from the script. So clearly it's not an idea they have that much problem with. Otherwise, they would have done something about it, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. That's really interesting. So why don't we switch over then and talk? I want to talk a little bit about uh, Oliver Stone and other directors that you mentioned in the book that really, I mean, at least they're doing their best to be sort of hard-hitting against the system, and yet somehow they end up being watered down. Uh, Even more controversial movies that they may have made don't get made or get watered down. Um, Because I think some people are going to be listening to this and saying, well, you know, hey, no, I know, you know, Oliver Stone or Michael Moore, they're making these these, you know, really anti-war films or anti-establishment films. So they can't all be censored or or repressed in some way. Oh, no, I mean, we say it in the book. um, Hollywood is quite a broad church. It does involve quite a lot of different sorts of people making quite a lot of different sorts of films. And most of those films, to be fair, are being made without anything to do with the government, really. Um, So that part of the process just simply doesn't apply to most of Hollywood's output, I would suggest. But nonetheless, the Hollywood studios themselves are quite conservative, conservative in a small C sense, that they're they're risk averse. They don't want to really go upsetting any apple carts. So... They want a little bit of risk and drama and maybe a little bit of radical ideas in their films just to spice things up a bit because, you know, it helps keep people interested in a very repetitive product. Um, Right. (laughs) But they certainly don't want to go 
seriously pissing anyone off, generally speaking. Then you get people like Oliver Stone, who tried. You know, the guy did try. He made movies taking serious shots at Wall Street, taking serious shots at Vietnam. He even made JFK, which one might argue is the most politically influential Hollywood film of all time. It seriously contributed to getting that whole thing at least somewhat reopened and Mm -hmm. some kind of acknowledgement from the government that, no, far too much of this is being kept secret, given how long had passed by that point. And, you know, you're talking 30 years later and they're still saying, oh, no, you just can't see those documents. Well, that film did seriously help turn that around. And maybe one day that means we actually get some real information about the JFK assassination that we might actually be able to answer some of our questions. And that's a big thing for a movie to accomplish. You know, that's not nothing. So the guy tried. And then, you know, inevitably he butts up against the Hollywood machine. He starts, you know, finding it harder and harder to get these projects financed. He almost gives up at one point and goes and makes trash like World Trade Center. Right. (laughs) And this this is a guy who'd made relatively public statements suggesting you know he thought something was deeply wrong with 9-11 or at least that you know it wasn't as advertised and then he goes and makes world trade center which is just this you know flag waving pro-america piece of dreck really. yeah that, not... right that was strange i mean like where did that come from i guess he got offered a bunch of money and at that point he was struggling in hollywood and he right. just thought <laughs> sod it why not yeah um sure and i can't particularly blame him but this is what we mean that filmmakers and it's particularly when they're early on in their career you could say the same things happened to michael moore when was the last time michael moore actually made a subversive movie back yeah. in the 90s he was making some early 2000s he was making some last 10 years last 12 15 years not, not so much really for sure he's, and even the 9 11 political movie. films but they're not that kind of hard hitting so yeah, like you say, inevitably just sort of seems to get watered down. They just bash up against the limits of the industry, and that's that. Sorry, what were you going to say about Fahrenheit 9-11? Oh, I just, you know, even that, even that movie really didn't seem to go very far. I mean, there was so much more information that, uh, you know, he could have gone into. It was, it was, yeah. it was mainstreaming, you, you know, so much uh, and not, not, not going deeply into uh, a lot of the questions that people have about 9-11, so... Yeah, but I guess if you had done that, then there was no chance of that getting a wide release, <laughs> and certainly no chance of it winning an Oscar. That's so, for sure. Yeah, um, this is this is what you can see that this is the effect of the Hollywood machine. That just like I say, they're risk averse. They right. don't want to throw millions of dollars at something that might actually <laughs> piss someone off. But of course, if you tell the truth, you're bound to piss someone off. You just are. Um, yeah, so they, don't tend, they don't tend to <laughs> make for sure. that tell a, tell a lot of truth. <laughs> right, I mean, that's sort of basically how the dynamic works. <laughs> well, all right, we've got um, about ten, ten or fifteen minutes left in the show, we, so we should be wrapping it up. But I wanted to mention um, before we go that there are other ways besides just um, direct Pentagon influence that do water down these movies. You talk uh, in the book about a couple of other ways. Um, product placement being one where you know you've just got so much money that that are riding on these things and i you know i don't know about you but i for one i don't i don't really separate the corporate structure from the government structure so much they seem to work pretty closely hand in hand so you know when when it comes to like not pissing people off and you're trying to make a hundred million dollars on product placement you know, what influence does something like this have on the script? I mean, you've got then dozens of corporations in every movie that are trying to get their product into a blockbuster, but then they want their product to look good. You know, they want it to be put in, in a certain scene in a certain way, so they're going to have input on the script. Um, can you can you discuss this a little bit? Well, I mean, I don't think they have the same kind of influence on the script as the as the Pentagon say. I don't think Coca-Cola is phoning them up and giving them script notes in such a kind of explicit way. Mm-hmm. But like you say, they want to be associated. They want to be associated with the hero, usually, in the movie, is, right. is what it comes down to, is whoever's the good guy, whoever we're rooting for in this film, they have to be somehow associated with our brand. Or if your brand is a location, say, you have a lot these days of... Um, uh, kind of rising developing nations or even now developed nations have a lot of cash on hand. And so they're saying, come and film in our country, come and show off our country as 
either just for tourism purposes or, you know, just as kind of general PR for the nation. Mm-hmm. Come and we'll give you tens of millions of dollars for <laughs> coming and filming in Dubai or whatever. So there again, they might not have that same kind of direct, explicit influence over the script, but they're still, you know, creating a, a vested interest that it means the producers don't want to piss them off. What? And so... You know, they're never going to make a movie set in Dubai claiming $30 million in tax credits from the Dubai government saying what the Dubai government <laughs> is actually like. <laughs> Absolutely. And that uh, that was another really important point that the book brought up was that then when you have governments and locations giving deals to these big Hollywood films for um, production costs, uh, then you r- really what you're starting to have then is not not even just American propaganda getting into these films. But it could be Dubai or Saudi Arabia or, in some cases, the Chinese government that are starting to have, uh, you know, some influence over this kind of thing. It's like, well, wow. I mean, you well, know. I mean, we did cite one example in the book with um, Spectre, the James Bond movie, uh, 2015 James Bond movie. And this came out in the Sony hack, right, that the Mexican government had not not just given them a whole bunch of money, but seems to have gone around their usual tax rebate and whatever it is their usual mechanism for giving money back to filmmakers who come and film in mexico they seem to have done a special deal outside of that that actually granted them some influence over the script so in that opening sequence instead of the uh, kind of in the the gangster character that bond confronts in mexico city instead of them being a mexican criminal they're just some kind of international gangster fixed fixer character mm-hmm they wanted the first Bond girl that appears in that scene. Uh, they wanted her to be cast as a major Mexican actress. So these are creative, politicized decisions that did change. I mean, Sony turned around and said, oh, no, no, we didn't actually change all of that. It, uh, you know, these documents don't actually represent those negotiations. But you watch the film, and it's all in keeping with what the Mexican government asked for. So you can only right. assume they did. That deal was struck along those terms. Um, so they do sometimes have that same kind of influence over the script and influence over creative decision making and i do wonder not that we explicitly get into this in the book but it is a line of my thinking that particularly in this field you see nations acting almost like nationalistic corporations right that they have a brand for sure yeah so this is why you see things like azerbaijan paying enormous amounts of money to host a grand prix or to have the eurovision song contest it's because they want to promote Azerbaijan as a almost as a product in itself, which is a pretty bizarre way for a nation to look at itself. Um, <laughs> but this is, I guess, what you get with globalization. Well, it is interesting. So, yeah, go on. Well, just in our conversation, like you mentioned globalization just then, um, it, it blurring the line between the, co- the corporate and the government world. I mean, what are they? Maybe the governments are just big corporations now, and big corporations are just little governments, or you know... <laughs> Well, sometimes not so little government. Yeah, but yeah, right. Certainly when you look at their behavior, they act, they have a similar set of vested interests in mind and they act in very similar ways. Mm-hmm. And so, again, as a result of this, it's not like um, Heineken, say, are, well, actually we did find an example of Heineken making a little change to a James Bond movie, but <laughs> it's, it's not like Budweiser um, have a consistent process of rewriting Hollywood scripts. Yeah. It's more that, if you want to get them in your movie and to give you some money to try and pay for this $250 million monstrosity that you're making, <laughs> right? It's, it's like, you know, you're going to need some product placement if that's the kind of money you're going to spend, aren't you? So, well, um, one of the things... If you want that, you kind of... Again, you don't want to upset the apple cart. And the apple cart is, you know, consumerism is good. Keep buying, keep working, keep supporting the system. Don't right. piss anyone off. Yeah. That's kind of... <laughs> The basic philosophy behind that relationship. And as a result, just in lots of little ways, Hollywood becomes ever more conservative, ever more frightened of taking risks, ever more unoriginal and kind of endlessly based around rebooting and remaking and all of the stuff that we see dominating Hollywood today, where there's just so little originality in it. And that's, for one thing, that's the sad part of this story for me, is that I like films I like entertainment, you know, who doesn't? But I want to see some stuff that's creative and surprising and unusual. 
rather than just the same old Budweiser-sponsored, DOD-supported schlock. <laughs> you know, that was one of the things that I, and it's, uh, it's perfect, we're hitting on about an hour, so we should be winding down, but why don't we kind of end with uh, this overview? Like, what do you think uh, Hollywood would look like without this kind of influence, you know? I mean, I, y- you start to realize that, my God... Um, you know, another thing you bring up, you talk about the big six. I mean, there, there's really only a few major media corporations that are making all of these blockbuster films. So you're not getting a lot of small, independent, creative movies. And, um, and you know, certainly the vast majority of what's getting pushed on you comes from these six major corporations. And they're the ones that are making these huge films that are influenced by all this corporate stuff and by all this pen- by the Pentagon and the CIA and all this propaganda stuff. I mean, what would entertainment look like without it? I mean, if we actually had just, you know, creative individuals saying what they wanted. Uh, you know, what I'm getting at, too, in a broader sense is, you know, w- like, what is propaganda? What is censorship? What would art in a free society look like without all of this? Because I think it would be remarkably different. You know, it would be very, very different from the kind of stuff we're getting now that is more controlled than you, you know, than I think the average person really realizes. Um, I suppose I'm in two minds over this. Part of me thinks, yes, it probably would look quite different. The other part of me says, if you're making mass entertainment for a mass market, then inevitably you're going to do something like a Michael Bay movie. Right. So, um, (laughs) so there would still be that, you know, the market force of if you're going to spend $200 million making a movie and you want to try and make back $700 million dollars then you're basically just going to have to tick a load of boxes and give the people what they want. Mm-hmm. But there would certainly be more room for films like The East and Kill the Messenger. They're two that we mentioned in the book, uh, relatively recent films that really do contain profoundly subversive material and get into some areas that most films just wouldn't touch. Now, both of these films were made for a few million dollars each, Neither one of them made a profit, I don't think. Yeah. Neither one was very widely distributed or marketed. You only really find out about them if you're, you know, a film buff who's into this kind of thing. So, you know, those films are out there. Hollywood does make these films, but they're usually very much on the lower end of the spectrum financially and in terms of uh, attention drawn to them and so on. So I think we'd get more of those. I think that would be the fundamental difference is that there'd be more room for people to take you know, $5 million and go make something that looks lovely. That's got good actors. It's, you know, good production values, but that has the freedom to explore aspects of the real world or the fantasy world that just otherwise don't tend to get touched. Right. I think that would be the fundamental difference. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you talk about too, is how Hollywood so often regurgitates propaganda that comes from the news that um, flight 93 kind of comes to mind when it's like here we're just going to tell you what we think happened you know and the way the news kind of put it out there and we're going to turn it into a big hollywood blockbuster but um it's regurgitating more of the same kind of propaganda that you've been hearing on the news and so it's reinforcing i guess what makes me think about this is that i mean you know pop culture and especially what's coming out of hollywood is so huge in terms of the social engineering like i mean i like to hope anyway that the culture itself would be better. Like, people would start to want better movies, you know, if they were given movies that made them think and become better people, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it would help create more of a market for those. It would help create more of an expectation for that sort of art. Yeah, of course, yeah. And so, gradually, over a longer period of time, yes, I think you would see more and more of those kind of things. You'd see more demand for them, more expectation of them, and... Yeah, just more of them getting made and actually being talked about. And you would see cinema having a a greater influence over politics, because right now, I'm not sure if it does, or in as much as it does, it's mostly the pro-war stuff. Um, There are very few movies that have much of a positive political impact. I'd say there's a fair few that have quite a lot of negative. So, Yeah, yeah, that dynamic could be reversed. Well, all right, Tom, we've gotten uh, a little over an hour, so we should probably wrap it up. Um, Do you have any final comments that you'd like to make? Well, just that if people want to learn more about this, there's dozens more examples of of manipulation of scripts and so on that we haven't been able to touch on today. So if you want to learn more about that, and that, to my mind, is the key information in the book, 
then yeah, go check it out, National Security Cinema. We've been working very hard on this for a number of years, bringing all of this stuff together. Uh, we haven't done it lightly. We think this is a serious issue. We think this is something people need to know about and deserve to know about. So yeah, go check out the book. Um, and like I say, if you want to sort of get some more background material or listen to my podcast or any of that sort of stuff, then go to spyculture.com because that's my site where I get into all of this stuff in endless detail, to be honest. All right. And uh, if you like what you've heard today on The Shift, then please help us out. You can go to our Patreon account at uh, the shift backslash, excuse me, patreon.com backslash The Shift. If you want to find out more about what we're doing uh, here at the production, you can get us on Facebook at uh, The Shift with Doug McKenty or join the conversation on Twitter at Doug McKenty. And uh, again, I want to take, thank Tom Secker for coming. He is the co-author of National Security Cinema, The Shocking New Evidence of Government Control in Hollywood. And if you want to find out more, uh, again, check him out at spyculture.com. I think um, this is a great uh, topic for conversation, and I think that more people should talk about it because, as Tom said, um, the influence of, of the government corporate complex over what we're hearing is uh, kind of watered down, uh, talked about uh, very little and generally conservatively. But I think, as uh, Tom has figured out, maybe this is a, uh, a bigger deal than a lot of us think, and it's definitely worth our time to look into it a little bit more. So uh, thanks again, Tom. Really appreciate you being on The Shift. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. All right. Take care, everyone.